Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. Might not be the morning where you're listening to this or whenever you're listening to this, but for me, it's 4 a.m. right now because our guest is uh, not in the United States. We'll get into that a little bit later, but first off, make sure you sign up for the mailing list. Once again, we're going to keep stressing that just so that uh, we can stay in touch with you guys. And um, in case Instagram goes down, Instagram does whatever, that's our best way to contact you. So make sure you go do that. But now let's get into this episode. Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Welcome to the Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now, here's your host, Raghav Sharma. So I might have lied a little bit in the intro saying specialists around the country because we're going global. Our guest today is a specialist physiotherapist, sports scientist, strength and conditioning coach in the UK, Adam Meekins. Um, he is pretty globally renowned at this point for teaching international workshops. He's been published in peer-reviewed journals and also has even written a chapter in a sports medicine injury textbook. Um, he's also host of the NAF Physio Podcast. Not going to stay what that stands for on this podcast. And uh, kind of more importantly than all of that, has recently had a back injury, which we'll also be diving into just a little bit. So, uh, Adam, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Regav. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invite. Definitely. So the first thing is you are a physiotherapist. Um, all of our guests in the United States don't necessarily know what that means. Are you a physical therapist? Are you like a chiropractor? What do you do and where does your passion for MSK care come from? Yeah, so you're right. The profession goes under various different names. So in the US, they're called physical therapists. In Europe and Scandinavia, they're normally called physiotherapists. Uh, they are the same. Um, they are the same profession. They have the same ethos, the same philosophy and the same training, uh, which is to help with various different conditions, uh, normally of the musculoskeletal system, but there is also offshoots of physiotherapy into neurology, respiratory, pediatrics and stuff along those lines. But I'm a musculoskeletal physiotherapist, so I predominantly look after you know conditions, pain, pathologies of the musculoskeletal system. Uh, my passion for getting into musculoskeletal physiotherapy was a bit by accident, if I'm being honest. Um, I've always been into health and fitness from a young age. I grew up in a military background with my father being uh, a soldier. I very much wanted to go into the military myself from a young age, and that's what I did. I had no ambitions to become anything healthcare related at all. wanted to have a career in the military, and uh, unfortunately, due to some family circumstances. I had to leave the military after a very short career. So I was only in there for four years, uh, came out into the civilian world, a little bit not knowing what to do with the rest of my life, sort of a little bit of crisis. Um, but because I was into health and fitness and the military had made me even more healthier and fitter, I would probably say, uh, I went into personal training, uh, but that was a very unregulated profession. I found it quite frustrating to work in. I wanted to learn a bit more, felt a bit out of my depth with my knowledge and skills. So I decided to go retrain, went back to university, got my first degree uh, in sports science. So I got a Bachelor of Science in sports science, first and foremost, which I really enjoyed, taught me a lot about 
exercise physiology, all that sort of stuff. Came out, started to work more as a sports scientist and started to do more coaching in various different fields, sports and athletes, and really started to enjoy that. But again, got frustrated because I was coming across athletes and clients that were having injuries, who were in pain, and I really didn't know how to proceed or whether it was safe to proceed. And that's what eventually led me on to doing my second Bachelor of Science degree in physiotherapy. And the rest, they say, is history. For sure. I found it funny. I think on one of the comments on your recent Instagram post, someone like said, this guy knows nothing what he's talking about. Um, and for uh, what I'm referencing for those at home is on his uh, Instagram, he's been dealing with a back injury, which we'll talk about. I didn't think it'd come up this fast, but um, he's been talking about a back injury. And I think a bunch of people are commenting, mate, you don't know what you're talking about and all this stuff. And here he is, just so much experience kind of guided through his passion about what he found curi uh, curious at that point. So it's definitely a great story. Um, the question that we always have for every guest on preventive medicine, since this is preventive medicine podcast is kind of what does preventive medicine mean to you? Yeah, it's a good question. When you sent me this one, I had to think about it for a while. Um, but in a nutshell, I think I'll keep it simple as I can. I think it's basically for healthcare professionals to be more proactive rather than reactive. Uh, so I did write a blog probably three, four, maybe even five years ago now, how I thought the physiotherapy profession wasn't doing a very good job at this. Uh, and I also think this applies to most of healthcare, but obviously my experience is in the physio profession. So I just find that, you know, the physio profession is very much focused on the treatment of disease, pain and pathology, which of course is very important to do. And I'm not going to downplay that. But I do think that we have lost sight of the bigger picture. We haven't taken a step back and uh, saying, well, where is all this coming from? What are the things we could be doing to try and prevent all these aches and pains and musculoskeletal conditions that are increasing? You know, year on year, we're seeing more and more people coming in with more and more musculoskeletal problems. And now, you know, low back pain is probably the number one cause factor of pain globally. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, you know, it's due to various different factors. It's a complex, multifactorial, multidimensional problem, things like back pain. Um, it's due to an increase in aging population. It's due to an increase in population. But it's also down to other environmental lifestyle factors as well, which is only getting worse, unfortunately. I think, you know, we talked about we're in the current COVID pandemic, but I think we're also in a current sedentary and obesity pandemic as well. And I uh, say, unless we try to do something to turn this around, um, healthcare systems are just not going to be able to keep up. We are going to be swamped. So I, I am very keen on trying to, as much as we can do, is, say, is treat and manage what we're seeing, but also think about the bigger picture and start to actually encourage more proactivity into physiotherapists. And it's not simple. It's not easy. But I think we've got to start, you know, with just some simple, clear, concise messages on health and wellness. You know, and that's using various different channels to do that. You know, social media is a great way of doing that. It's not all about, you know, rehab. It's not all about, you know, talking about how to get back from injury. It's talking about how to avoid injuries. It's talking about how to avoid pain and disease and pathologies that cause discomforts and stuff. Uh, but again, I also think, you know, this is a massive issue and it's, you know, one individual physiotherapist. Yeah, absolutely. Do what you can. But, you know, it needs to be done at a much bigger level, government sort of level, agency sort of level as well. And if I'm being honest, you know, when I think about how can we you know, improve the current situation in our populations, I think it has to start from an early age with children. I really do think, you know, the way that, that physios could be helping massively is encouraging people to move more, uh, talking about health and wellness and fitness. And that starts, as say, from childhood. So get people into schools and start doing that stuff. 
I can agree with you right there. And I think even on the last episode with uh, Dr. Carl Nadolsky, we talked about that with regards to like endocrine and just like diet in general, where um, we can help people. But I think the biggest impact comes when we do things from a larger governmental level and also helping younger folks and helping those younger folks helps them set up for like habits and whatnot. And then it goes down generationally. And then if you set someone up um, when they're a kid, they're more likely to sustain those habits as they go into older age, teach it to their kids, and then it goes on and on. So like how you bring that up. And I also like how you bring up that um, it's something that we should be focusing on because we won't be able to handle as healthcare professionals. I'm going to physical medicine rehab. So I'll be a rehab doctor. Um, but even like in the field of medicine, rehab, whatever it is, we won't be able to handle the amount of patients coming our way because it just keeps increasing and then resources keep getting stretched more and more and more. And eventually we won't be able to do a good job with the patients that we do have. Uh, thankfully, we still are right now. So I kind of bring that up. It's kind of like, um, I wouldn't say existential crisis because I don't want to be alarmist or anything, <laughs> but yeah. I think it could definitely go south pretty fast. Yeah, when you just look at the rate of the increasing population and again, the increasing rates of obesity, I think I read somewhere that you know, we're expecting, you know, on management of obesity related conditions, I think the NHS is probably expecting about a 25 billion cost of just obesity related conditions within the next few years. And I'm just like, that is just a staggering amount of money that could be hopefully prevented. Exactly. And so when we think about physical therapy or physiotherapy, um, it's typically used after an injury. Most people, when they think about like the progression of whatever happens is they get injured, they go to a doctor um, that like diagnoses them that like whatever treatment injury then passes them off to physiotherapy, physical therapy for sustained rehabilitation. Um, so since that is a traditional like scope of what people think about physiotherapy, how can it actually be used for prevention versus like the acute management, acute treatment and rehab? So a couple of things I think physiotherapists can do to try and, you know, help prevent. And this is where I have a little bit of an issue with regards to the word prevent uh, particularly when I'm dealing with musculoskeletal injuries, because I don't think we can prevent them, but we can certainly look to reduce the risk or mitigate risk when it comes to injuries. Exactly. Yep. Uh, so I think the word prevention is a little bit of a misnomer here, but I understand what you're saying. Uh, but two couple of things, I think, you know, it's uh, it's about taking that step back and looking at the bigger picture, a more holistic lifestyle about promoting people to move more and have, you know, healthier lifestyles uh, and not just focusing on, you know, the so-called you know, tiny, minute specifics that I think a lot of physiotherapists get themselves buried into and try to correct things that I don't think actually need to be corrective. Um, so I think that sometimes is where we end up wasting a lot of time, resources and energy when we could be better off helping people, you know, reduce their risk of injuries by saying, how much sleep have you had in the last couple of months, rather than just focusing on their knee pathology, etc. So again, it's a, it's a complex issue. Um, I think, to say, no simple answers. Uh, I think the other thing that the physiotherapist profession needs to try and do as best as it can is um, stop creating as many unnecessary barriers and fears about getting people moving and exercising as well. So I think that's another factor that I think is actually probably counteracting what they're trying to do. So again, when we talk about trying to reduce risk of injuries, we normally have these outdated or physiotherapists normally often promote outdated and accurate narratives about how to reduce your risk. And it's normally faced around, you know, you've got to move correctly, you've got to exercise perfectly with correct technique. And I think that creates a lot of unnecessary barriers and stops people from actually just engaging in the exercise. So I think we've got to be mindful about the messages we give out there 
and find that balance between being sensible, practical, but also, again, not off-putting. Perfect. And we'll talk about uh, some of the barriers to exercise um, a little bit later on. That's something I definitely want to discuss with you. Um, but for right now, one of the things that I really want to discuss with you and chat with you about is manual therapy. So for those of you guys who don't know, who are listening to this podcast, I went to an osteopathic school. And by that, it means that I learned osteopathic manipulative medicine, which is like a it's a manual therapy. It's a manipulative medicine where you like, um, quote unquote, someone comes in with like a rotated spine in one way and you like fix that one segment. Um, someone has some dysfunction with their ribs when they're breathing. So you can fix their ribs. Um, I am not going to get in my views on that. I am generally not a very strong proponent or believer in that. Um, but however, when some of my friends do have some like back pain sometimes, um, they'll be like, oh, I need to go get an adjustment. And then they like go to their friend who's a fellow osteopath and then um, they get an adjustment like, ah, oh, I feel great. And then keep going about their day. Um, we know data wise that it doesn't necessarily um, like help that much with like um, whatever the parameters are that you're looking at. Typically, it doesn't help that much. And you're a very well-known critic on manual therapy, despite being trained in it, correct? Yes. Yeah, um, when did you years. flip the switch? Yeah. When did you flip the switch? And can you talk a little bit about the use of manual therapy in general from like a broad perspective? Yeah, sure. So this is something I get asked a lot because I have been quite vocal with my views and opinions and criticisms around manual therapy over the years, which uh, has generated a lot of discussion, debate and disagreement and arguments as well. Uh, so just a bit mm -hmm. about my background in manual therapy. Yeah, a lot of people think I'm talking from ignorance or lack of experience in it, and that's not true at all. So when I first trained as a physiotherapist after coming from, a, say, a sports science background, coaching background, exercise background, I was intrigued in all these techniques about how to try and help and reduce pain quickly, sooner and faster. So I spent a good few years of my early career as a physiotherapist trying to perfect and learn the dark arts of manual therapy trying to you know, <laughs> understand the the wizardry and Jedi magic, magic skills that some of these therapists are claiming they've got. You know, people walk into a room crippled and bazam, you know, three minutes later they've done something and adjusted them and the person now is cured and miraculously healed. And I was intrigued by it. So I spent years learning it, went on various different courses. I've spent thousands of pounds, you know, having upskill or so-called upskilling in manual therapy, postgraduate training. So that was my background in it. But what I started to find is that I wasn't getting the results that everybody was claiming I should do. Um, I started to get quite tired and fatigued and despondent with it as well. because so I started to think, it's me. It's my problem. You know, I'm shit at it, obviously. And I got quite tired of other people, gurus and teachers and educators, constantly making me feel like I'm a failure or I'm inferior or I'm an inadequate therapist because I wasn't getting the results that they were claiming they were getting. Uh, so I started to look into it a bit more and I'm like, what is going on here? Why am I not curing people like I should be doing according to what all these other people are saying they're doing? And the more I started to read into the data and the research, you know, reading stuff that people don't promote in the manual therapy world that they don't tell you about, I started to go, hold on a minute. The effect sizes of this are terrible. <laughs> There's nothing magic here. There's no great effect from manual therapy. And I also started to found out about I'd been hoodwinked and misled with all the you know, crap and nonsense around the specificity and the skill needed to do it. Because when you look at sham or placebo controlled trials with all various different types of techniques, 
one doesn't outperform the other. So I'm thinking, well, why am I wasting all my time in thinking I've got to push in a particular way, do a specific technique, go on these courses to try and perfect my palpation skills to feel so-called, you know, dysfunctions that are probably not dysfunctions and we're just, you know, pathologizing normal people's anatomy. You know, so I started to realize I didn't have to do that. And then I started to play around with it. I started to do manual therapy in so-called incorrect ways and different techniques and not following the rules. And I found I was getting just the same results and effects as I would do as if I was doing it specifically. So I thought, hold on, this doesn't make sense. And then I started to become quite vocal of it because then I started to say, well, I feel hard done by here. And I started to see people being, again, still led down the path that I was going down. So I wanted to change that. So I started to vocalize my views and opinions, start to share the evidence and the research that nobody was sharing or talking about to say, it's not really needed. It's not essential. It's not necessary. Um, and that pretty much is where I'm still at at the moment. I've realized that manual therapy takes up way too much of my time and energy with patients. So I've abandoned it now. Now I'm not saying everybody has to do that. I know it can help some people in some circumstances for short periods of time, but it's not specific. It's not skilled and it's not magic. And I often find it just distracts attention away from other more important stuff that you need to be doing with people who've got pain and disease and pathology, which is listening, giving them advice and education, and of course, of course, exploring movement and trying to get them move more. So I think, you know, that's where I spend most of my time now with my clients, not getting them lying down for 20 minutes and rubbing and poking and massaging him out of mm -hmm. a 30-minute session. You know, that's where I think it's all going wrong. I can sympathize you with you on the point where you say like you were frustrated because you don't seem to get the same results as some of the other like gurus and whoever are using it. And I felt similarly when obviously I was still a student at that point, but when you learn it in school, um, you see your instructors using it and they seem so skilled. They seem to know exactly what to do. They're like, oh yeah, you just do this and the person will feel great. We have great results in the clinic and whatnot. Yeah. And then you start doing it on your friends and you're like, uh, I have no clue what I'm doing. I'm just yeah. like moving these things. And yeah. I think at our point, a lot of uh, students don't take it super seriously anymore just because we do seem to know the data and we aren't as dogmatic about it. Um, but I'm when seeing it does it changing. come... I'm, I'm seeing it changing mm -hmm. slowly, gradually now. And, and you know, that's good, you know, but it is, it's glacial in the change. But, you know, I, I just keep seeing <laughs> people claiming, you know, you got to have years and years of practice to perfect these techniques to get good at it. And it's nonsense yeah. because all that is, is just marketing scams to get people to go on more and more postgraduate courses. So, and again, you know, these gurus and these individuals out there that keep flogging these courses to these, you know, uh, young, impressionable, naive, hardworking, dedicated clinicians who want to do the best for their patients. I'm like, please don't fall and make the same mistakes for what I did. Don't fall for it. So one of the things that you said is that it can be beneficial for some people. And mm. can I have you specify on like what type of benefits do some people see? Is that uh, useful at all? Should we completely be throwing it out the window and just doing some other things like getting people exercising, moving, whatnot? Or is what what is the benefit? Um, it, it's a short-term pain modulator, modulation. So when somebody has some pain or some even some sensations of stiffness and restriction and fatigue as well, so it's not only just for pain. I think it can help with stiffness and, say, feelings of fatigue. It gives a temporary modulation to that, and it's just simply playing around with somebody's processing. It all works via neurological processes, so it involves a lot of contextual factors for it to actually be beneficial so i think there has to be a strong experience past experience of good effect there also has to be a strong belief that this is also going to help uh, there has to be a good therapeutic alliance between the patient and the person doing it for it to be beneficial 
Um, so I think, you know, it, it works via these mechanisms and can give, as I said, short-term temporary reductions in sensations of pain, fatigue, or stiffness. So there can be a role for that, but I don't think it's essential or necessary because there's many other ways as well to get short-term temporary reductions in pain, stiffness, and fatigue as well. So it's not the only way. This is where I start to get a little bit edgy and and, and get a bit wound up when manual therapists are claiming superiority of their techniques over things such as a simple hot pack, some paracetamol, uh, some stretching that can be done simpler, mm-hmm. easily accessible, accessible, cheaper. You know, that's where I start to say, yes, what you do is okay, but it's no more superior than these other things as well that could also be options for other people. And I find, again, it's it's sometimes physiotherapists, they forget about the bigger picture that the most people who have got most pain and disability come from low economical social groups who normally don't have the spare income and money and time to waste lying down, seeing a physiotherapist Mm -hmm. getting poked and pressed and massaged. So they get this very skewed view of who it helps and why it helps. They don't look at the bigger global population who don't go and get treatment because they can't afford it. They're working six jobs. They haven't got the time to book an appointment. Uh, And that just really does get on my nerves as well. We've also got to be helping these people. In fact, I think we've got to be helping those populations even more than the ones we see. Yeah, now that is huge. And I don't want to keep getting you wound up. It's a little early in the morning to have a uh, wound up person. So we're not going to go there. We're going to shift gears a little bit. Instead of just like um, the manual therapy in terms of spinal manipulation and whatnot, uh, when it comes to scraping, cupping, dry needling, all of those kinds of things, um, one of the things that I've seen and uh, experienced is that in the world of bodybuilding, powerlifting, a lot of people get these types of manual therapies to quote unquote prevent injuries. You can see an Instagram caption like got to keep my body right, getting all the scraping done so that I can stay healthy, stay longer in the sport. Um, can those things actually help in reducing the risk, um, using the right term of these injuries or are they also sham and useless? So simply put, in trying to reduce risk of injuries or prevent injuries, having these passive treatments simply don't do a significant job of that. The data doesn't show that that does anything major. Um, But that goes for any real intervention when it comes to reducing the risk of injuries. There is no sole isolated intervention that is able to significantly reduce the risk of having injuries. So it's normally a combination of factors that we are looking at rather than just one thing in isolation. So like I said, you know, these things can reduce sensations of fatigue, soreness and stiffness, which may assist a little with somebody's performance in the next session, next bout of training or competition. Um, But will it reduce or significantly impact that risk of them having an injury? Um, during that time, that next session, I'd probably say it's it's very unlikely. It's, it, if it does, it's probably coincidental. But the impact and the say the size of the effect of these things in reducing injuries is very very small. We want to take a quick break to remind you that this podcast is not intended for medical advice and is for educational and informational purposes only. We also want to remind you of our Instagram page at PreventPod, where we share various content relating to each episode that you can share with your friends if you enjoy our episode. And lastly, don't forget to sign up for our mailing list so you know right away when an episode goes up at www.thepreventivemedicinepodcast.com. And with that, let's get back into this episode. 
So you're mentioning that these manual therapies cannot really be used to reduce our risk, but they can maybe help a little bit in like uh, future training sessions just to feel a little bit better. So maybe you can push a little bit harder. Let's say if you're a bodybuilder, you get like another two or three reps out of something just because you feel good. Um, so when it comes to preventing the risk of injury, we know that kind of uh, balancing exercise load and all these other stress factors, sleep, nutrition are very important. Um, but when it comes to the general population person, um, they don't necessarily know how to balance all of that versus like form and all these different things. So when you're first starting, how do you kind of write a good prescription for someone? Like how do they go five days a week right into it? Um, where does someone start when they get into resistance training or just training in general? Well, again, it really depends on what the individual's goals are and a lot of individual factors around that person, their age, their past experiences, et cetera, past medical history, past injury history. You know, all these their various different factors are taken into consideration when we're going to write a prescription plan or an exercise program for somebody. So I'd always say, you know, it's about individualizing what we're going to do for the person in front of us. So I don't think, you know, I'm not a fan of generic programs. So when I see, you know, these apps that I know are trying to promote people to move more and exercise more. So you've got this couch to 5k app where you're trying to encourage people to run five kilometers who go from a completely mm -hmm. sedentary background. Yes. Okay. For, you know, the vast majority of people that will help them. But there's always going to be the individual that it doesn't, that it's going to be too slow or it's going to be too fast for. So, again, you know, we just got to take a more individual approach to how we prescribe and how we dose uh, exercises based on all these various different factors. But, you know, the main thing that we want to be trying to do, as we've been saying, is just get people engaging with the exercises more. So, you know, the number one factor for me when I come to prescribing exercises to somebody is, is it going to get done? Because the best exercise really is the one that's getting done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I think this is one of the topics that really um, needs some exploring and really needs to be solidified because exercise as medicine, quote unquote, the movement is kind of gaining steam, rightfully so and thankfully so. Um, finally, within the world of like uh, doctors, physical therapists and whatnot. So I think it's really imperative that we figure out how to start people with exercise and how to actually write a prescription. Um, so when it comes to kind of uh, contextualizing all these different factors um, for a patient's history, like the medical history and whatnot, is there something that's more important than the other? Or you just kind of write like a, just go to the gym, do what feels comfortable at first, and then progress from there. Do you start so, with them with a the program at all or like? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's it, it, I think there's an element of a bit of trial and error here. So I do think, you know, it's, it's a case of having, you know, a rough plan in your mind based on the patient's individual factors, their age, past medical history, etc. But it is a little bit of experimentation and then you can't get it right first time. A lot of the time you have to sort of, you know, try something, get some feedback from the individual. How did they find that? What was their confidence? How did it feel afterwards? And all these things to try and really tie down a good program for that individual. So again, I can't really give a specific answer here because it's based on so many different variations. You know, when it comes to, you know, things like, you know, what's the best exercise to give somebody? Again, I, I, a lot of people ask me this, you know, for various <laughs> different things and I, and I wish I had an answer, but I simply haven't because, you know, there, there is nothing in data that says there's any superiority of one type of exercise over the other. We just know that exercise has to be done. And then the other one that I get a lot is lots of questions about, you know, technique. You know, what's the best technique to perform an exercise? And I find that quite frustrating as well, dealing with 
physiotherapists, coaches and trainers. And I have this discussion a lot where they say, if you do it this way, it's dangerous, it's harmful and it's bad. And you do it this way, it's safe and it's okay to do. But I think that's, that's again, not been proven, shown in the literature. And again, much to everybody's amazement, there is no real evidence out there that doing an exercise in one particular way is less or more risky than another way. And we have to recognize that's because human movement is highly individual and gloriously variable. And it's based on so many different variables and factors. So something I keep trying to stress to trainers and coaches is, is don't try to constrain how people move based on your preconceptions and outdated training about what says you have to, because it doesn't always apply. Um, you know, human movement is a dynamical system, not to get too technical with it, but you know, a dynamical system is a system that simply has lots of degrees of freedom and lots of different strategies for completing the same task. And all human movements are dynamical systems and they relate to, you know, lots of different variables, but mainly, you know, individual variables such as their age, experience, confidence, their limb length ratios, joint morphology, past medical histories, etc. These all influence how somebody performs an exercise. So somebody with longer femurs uh, to their tibias will differently squat or have a different squatting pattern for someone with shorter femurs and then their tibias. Also, the task that they're doing will also influence the way they perform or execute a movement or an exercise. So again, do not expect to see somebody performing a low load exercise or task the same way as they would perform a high load task or exercise. Same with speeds as well. So the velocity, the tempo of the movement will affect the strategy that somebody uses. You know, one of the things I always use as an analogy to compare this is when I see trainers saying you have to do a body weight squat perfectly first before you earn the right to do a loaded weighted squat, I'm like, that's a complete misnomer and a complete understanding of human movement. Because asking somebody to perfect a body weight squat before they earn the right to do a loaded squat are two different intensities. They are not going to use the same movement strategies. That would be a bit like asking somebody to sprint the same way as they jogging. You would see a different <laughs> running style with their knee lifts, their cadence, okay? So you're not going to ask somebody to sprint the same way they jog. You're not going to expect someone to squat with high loads as you are with low loads because of those different task variations around it. And the other thing I think also gets completely ignored about movement variability is the environment in which people are doing the actual exercise in. You know, an environment where they're not being observed compared to an observed environment, people move differently. So there's the observer effect. Whether they're doing a task that is competitive or something that is just a training movement, again, they're going to take different risks. They're going to do different strategies. And also, again, you know, the, the is the task at, or the environment they're doing in is the exercise being done that they're aware of it is pre-planned or is it you know spontaneous you know unexpected movements again they can use different strategies based on these environmental task related factors and that often gets forgotten about i've had the pleasure of training with uh, eddie cone i'm not sure if you're aware uh, greatest power lifter and he was also in this podcast and one of the things that he always says when it comes to technique is um every power lifter is going to have perfect form perfect technique whatever you want to call it with 135. it's whenever the weight starts getting heavier you have to start experiencing that technique and load with heavier weights and that's really how you start to like because then it's the same intensity is exactly what you were saying we're not Absolutely. talking everyone 135 is completely different movement than 315 than four whatever your limit is Absolutely. so that's great that you brought that up and then to play devil's advocate here though there are some like limitations with form. For example, if someone's loading up 405 on a squat, like which is a relatively heavy weight, um, we're talking pounds here, sorry. You're talking <laughs> kilograms, I'll be talking Freedom pounds. Freedom units so like rather than metrics. 200, yeah. 
200 uh, kilograms, if they're loading that up on the squat and they're like kind of good morning it because um, I guess they're going for a PR, they're always have been a good morning squatter. And it nest, I guess now talking about it, it could theoretically be their movement. So I kind of just talked myself out of that. I, but, I could see I could see you working <laughs> down that rabbit hole. So I was just going to let you carry on. Yeah, yeah, I'm not going to go down that because I caught myself relatively quickly, which is good. But let's say someone has just like catastrophic form. We all know that person who just, I don't know how to describe it at this point, but something that just does not look good. Um, it looks like they're in significant pain. Maybe they're just like completely cameling a deadlift, which at that point, that cannot be good for you. Um, well, again, I understand oh, what you're go. saying and, you know, and I do agree, but I also don't agree as well. So this is, again, it's, it's always a bit of a, a conflict I have <laughs> in my mind is when do I intervene and when do I think yeah. about getting somebody to change their technique? And I, and I think, you know, I'm going to use what's called the pornography test, you know, put, you know, everybody tries to define what is pornography and everybody says, you just yeah. know when you see it. All right. And, yeah. and I think that's the same with movements as well. You can just know when a movement just doesn't look right. But I mm -hmm. think, you know, rather than just relying on what it looks like, also ask the person about what it feels like. So we've got to remember, you know, we get feedback externally from observations, but we also have feedback internally from what it feels like as well. And really what we want to do is try and match the two together. We want to have nice, good, external, observable feedback. That movement's looking good. It's looking efficient. It's looking safe. But we also want the individual to give us internal feedback that says it feels comfortable. They're confident. They're doing the exercise well. And, and sometimes I find putting people in correct, you know, movements and the external feedback, feedback is looking spot on. You know, you've got the perfect technique. And this person's going, oh, mm, ah, mm. This feels really, really, really <laughs> terrible. I'm, I'm hating it. I don't want to do it. But I'm like, man, that squat is just mwah, chef's kiss. Yeah. But that person yeah. is not enjoying it at all. That's not going to work. So again, we've got to recognize we need to match up what the pe person's internal feedback is telling them based on what our external feedback is. The one I struggle with is when my external feedback is going, oh my God, that looks bleh, horrible. I call it a positive vomit test. I see something and I'm dry heaving. I'm like, well, <laughs> all right, that doesn't look good. And then I asked the person, I said, how does that feel? And they go, that felt great. I was like, oh, that's just boom. I've got it. I nailed it. So good. So I'm happy. And I'm like, ah, oh, now what do I do? I've got, I've got this conflict. You know, my, my coaching, my training is screaming at me saying, change something. Don't let them carry on doing that. But their internal feedback is saying to me, they're happy. They're confident. If I start mucking about with that, I could actually affect their performance from doing it. So this is where it all starts, you know, becoming a little bit difficult, a little bit challenging. We have to manage uncertainty. We have to deal with the uncertainty that this creates. And it's not easy. And we do make mistakes when we do it. And I've done that. I've corrected somebody's technique and made them perform worse because I've relied on this external feedback rather than their internal feedback. And other times I've listened to their internal feedback, ignored my external feedback, said, no, you carry on doing it that way. All right, I'm not happy about it, but you're happy about it. And that breaks them down and they end up with problems. And I'm like, oh, I should have changed it. So again, no right or wrong answers. It's dealing with uncertainty. It's managing the shades of gray. You almost perfectly described the predicament with the positive vomit test. You have the person um, experiencing and saying that it feels great. And that kind of shows the experience between yourself and myself, because I didn't know how to describe that. I would still try to superimpose my um, imposed ideas of technique or whatnot. 
So to ask you more a bit about this though, then, so when someone, let's say, so I was a personal trainer for a little bit as well when I was in university um, and like in person. And when I was like helping people out, one of the things that I would focus on obviously is form because they're beginner to the exercise. So when someone's a beginner at what, like, how do you kind of balance form versus loading the weight and like um, getting them to the pre and post idea of what a movement should look like? So again, I think you're going to use a combination of factors here based on, you know, the individual's feedback that they're telling you as they're performing the exercises, you're increasing the load. And again, based on what you're seeing. So I think, you know, we do know that there are some more efficient ways to move load. All right. So we do know creating tension, keeping stiff tends to be a much more efficient way of moving heavier loads. So, you know, they're the sort of cues I'm giving to people, you know, keep things stiff, develop tension. Okay. Do the task, do the movement. Let's see how it looks. Let's see how it feels. And again, you know, you're trying to balance those two things together to try and find the best strategy solution for that person. So again, it's 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 just finding that balance between both observable external feedback and what the individual internally is feeding and telling you as well. Absolutely love it. And we could keep going down this rabbit hole probably and asking a little bit of things. I'm at this point selfishly probably trying to learn from you, which is not beneficial to our listeners. So we're going to move on. And one of the questions that I have for you is the deal with natural history. Um, so natural history is a huge topic and we're learning more and more that a lot of things are taken care of by natural history, um, whether it's like a medical issue or a musculoskeletal issue. Um, how do you know, or as a patient, I guess, how do you know whether something will be taken care of by natural history or when you should go see, uh, see someone for it? Yeah, it's a great question. And again, the simple answer is there's lots of variables that have to be taken into condition here. So we know, you know, natural history just simply refers to our body's ability and remarkable capacity to heal and regenerate after it's had an injury, illness and pathology. So we know that time, as the adage says, is a great healer for many things. And in the musculoskeletal world, it is. Um, but there are some things that have more favorable natural histories than others in the musculoskeletal worlds. And there are some things that can get in the way and delay and stop natural history from occurring. So again, what we need to try and do is, is spot or try to identify, is there anything in this patient's presentations, in their histories, that is going to get in the way of natural history? Um, so we're looking, you know, for serious pathologies. We're looking for, you know, any other sort of health related conditions that can slow tissue healing, remodeling rates down and all those sort of things. And, you know, it's about managing those factors to try and give them the best possible chance of having a good, favorable natural history. The other downside with it is, though, is, say, is when we screen and we assess patients, what I have found sometimes is the thing that gets in the way of the natural history is the individual, the healthcare professional actually screening and giving the person the advice and guidance. I think I always struggle to say this word, iatrogenic factors, okay, which basically means <laughs> the healthcare professional is actually probably getting in the way of the person's recovery. Mm -hmm. With normally, again, completely unintended, you know, I'm not saying it's malicious or malevolent. Most of these harms are actually, you know, just well-meaning, caring individuals trying their best to help somebody in a current situation. I think a lot of it is driven by, you know, the inferiority complexes that a lot of trainers and therapists have. They want to be trying to help. They want to do more than they actually probably can do. So they just over-try things and they over-complicate things and they over-explain things. And I think sometimes that actually gets in the way of an individual making natural progress if they just let things alone, carried on as much as normal, 
And hopefully, as you say, natural history just carries on and, and gets them back to square one with time. But telling people again, you know, come in with back pain, they've got 33 other problems, you know, the pelvis is out of line, the leg length's difference, you know, all squiffy, all these other problems now starting adding to the back pain problem can actually delay their progress. So again, we just got to be careful that we are not the things as healthcare professionals getting in the way of somebody's natural history. I like how you put that, where it's kind of the idea of removing as many barriers as possible from a person's like innate ability to heal, if you want to put that um, that way, I guess, yeah. instead of adding barriers. And as healthcare providers, um, specifically with a lot of trust that people have in us, we can unknowingly create those barriers just by saying things. And this is why words matter a lot of the time, because if you do say, oh, your leg might be a little bit different in length. Um, but you have it like as an offhand comment, just while like checking their heels or whatnot, then all of a sudden someone's like, oh my legs lengths are different. Should I be squatting differently? And then they start changing things and that might get in the way of what they're already doing. So I definitely like how you put that. Yeah. These little seeds as say are sometimes planted, like I say, completely unintentionally uh, and without realizing that they just develop in the back of people's minds and they grow and they start to ruminate and they start to worry about it. The amount of patients I've had worried about where their scapulas are sitting and what their scapulas are doing because a therapist has told them they've got scapular dyskinesis and winging when we know it, it doesn't actually matter. It doesn't relate to their shoulder pain or pathology. We see scapular dyskinesis just as another variation of human movement. And now the question that I want to work into this is with your back injury. So I saved some time at the end of this episode just because I know we can somehow end up talking a lot about this. Um, but keeping it relatively brief, when you suffered your back injury. So for anyone who's listening at home, if you go follow him on Instagram, um, Adam Meekins, A-D-A-M-M-E-A-K-I-N-S. He has an entire series kind of on his back page, starting with the first video, um, which just looks like he's doing a deadlift. And all of a sudden he like puts his hand on his back and he has some pain there. How did you know not to see anyone? Like, for example, you could have herniated a disc. Um, you could have like popped something that most people would think I need to go in and see someone for how did you know whether you should see someone or start to deal with on your own, create the series? Um, because I'm a healthcare professional with 20 <laughs> plus years experience of dealing with people with acute onset of low back pain. <sighs> so um, I am I, aware that I'm a unique individual um, who's suffering with uh, an injury uh, because of my background uh, and training. So I wouldn't recommend that if somebody else who was a layman who didn't have my experience doesn't go and get that back checked out when they have that situation. All I'm using this journey for is to say to document my progress and to show other individuals that really, you know, you don't, once you get it checked out and made sure there is, like we talked about, nothing serious that's going to get in the way of your natural history, um, is that it can be managed without too much aggressive, invasive, complicated management or treatment. Uh, and again, just showing how keeping moving, keeping positive, managing the pain as best as able is is normally all that's needed with these conditions and uh, you know i'm getting lots of debates lots of discussions around it people are accusing me of being stubborn for not going to get manual therapy people saying that i'm i'm being stupid because you know i don't want to reduce my pain i do want to reduce my pain and i have been <laughs> reducing my pain i'm just not using manual therapy to do it one because i haven't got time because of stuff going on in my family background and work commitments and everything else like that mm -hmm. i just know there's other ways that i can reduce my pain which is with simple analgesia some movement some stretching hot baths i've fallen in love with hot baths again i haven't had a bath probably in 20 years i clean myself regularly but i just haven't <laughs> had a, i just haven't had a hot bath 
Um, but the power and the pain alleviating, the immediate pain alleviating effect of a back, of a hot bath has been it's been a godsend these last few days. And you know, it's something like that simple little tip and advice that you can give somebody that is cheap, it's effective, it's readily accessible that can give a definite improvement to their pain. So it's it's just user say this injury that I've got as a way of trying to promote all these other options that people have. They don't have to rush and get manual therapy, dry needling that can cost a lot, take up a lot of time. There's lots of different ways of managing an injury. And I think the other thing to point out there is that a lot of these things work if you believe that they're going to work and if you believe they're going to get benefit and you're, the ship's already sailed for you. So I don't know if it's ever going to work. Yeah, that's, that's somebody else said that to me <laughs> as well. They said, you know, even if you were to come in for manual therapy, you're one of these stubborn gits that probably would still say, even if it did work, it didn't work. And I'm like, yeah, probably. I'd say being a skeptic does mean sometimes you, uh, you don't have uh, stronger effects with placebos maybe. I don't know. So one of the other things I wanted to ask you when it comes to, you're going to hate this question, but when it comes to this injury, you talked a little bit about an Instagram TV video of why you got injured. Mm. Um, but is this something that you could have uh, reduced your risk for prevented quote unquote, or is this something that's just going to happen at some point in training? You just kind of have to deal with it when it happens. No, hindsight is perfect, as they say here. It's, uh, it's yes, you know, if I look back in hindsight, there were some warning signs that said I was at a higher risk of injury. Um, so in my video, I talk about that this was week 16 of a program of exercises that I've been following since lockdown. Um, I was actually saying my, it was this, the real kick in the nuts is this was my last session before I was going to oh, have man. a deload week. Um, so, you know, I was going into that on a high volume of training. Um, I was fatigued. Um, there were a few other things going on in the background as well that meant my focus was not really on the job at hand um i was rushing because i was running behind for that day and i had appointments to get to in the afternoon uh, and the other thing is my rest periods in between sets were significantly reduced because somebody else was waiting for the platform so you know and and really on that first because this happened on the second rep of my normal three rm um, lifts and actually on that first rep which i completed with no problems i felt bad and you know my ego kicked in and said, come on, there's only two more reps and you're done. Um, but on that first rep, I should have listened. I should have obeyed my inner bloody feedback and said, mm -hmm. don't go for that second rep because it just doesn't feel good. So this is where I think sometimes giving people that information, sometimes listening to your body when you're doing really high load, effortful tasks is really, really useful. Not what people are telling you from the outside. Just listen to what you feel like on the inside. Because again, in hindsight, I shouldn't have gone for that second rep. And I'm kicking myself now, but there we go. Made my bed. I've got a lie in it. <laughs> it is what it is. Um, it is I like what how it you is. It'll be. It'll be. Yeah. <laughs> It wasn't the uh, pelvis being rotated two degrees. It wasn't his uh, leg not being in the perfect position. It was a combination of all those factors, as he just said, perfectly stated in like a minute to two minutes. Um, I want to thank you for this podcast. We're at the end of this. Um, you have everything. Everything that you said was very short, very sweet, spoken like a true master. So really appreciate that. The last question that we always have for our guests is if someone comes up to you, and also I can also anticipate what you're going to say to this. But if um, someone comes up to you in a coffee shop, you're getting a coffee and they ask you, how do you get healthy? What do you tell them in two minutes? I can do it in two seconds if you want, not two <laughs> minutes. I don't need two minutes for that. It's just move more. Um, and I don't care if that's walking more, jogging, running, crawling, lifting, squatting, swimming, rowing. Just find something you like doing. Do it often. Do it regularly. Um, and pick every something heavy up now and again as well. Won't go amiss as well because I'm a big fan of resistance-based exercises. But yeah, just move more.
Nice and easy. Thank you so much for being on. Um, your social media will be like everywhere on our podcast and whatnot, and we'll have all this content featuring you. So go check him out. He's a lot of fantastic content. Some of it might anger you a little bit just because uh, that's a little bit of what he does, but it's some pretty good stuff. Makes you challenge your own beliefs. For example, challenge my own belief about like form and whatnot. You could literally hear that in the podcast. That's probably going to be a moment that I'll save from this. So that was interesting, but thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome. Thanks for the chat. Really enjoyed it. Hey everyone, this is Raghav. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you want more content and to join in on the conversation, find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at PreventPod. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next one.